Right. Um, you can't go far wrong if you're if you've got the customer at heart of what you've got what what you're thinking of. And I think we get too lost in ideas and product ideas and concepts and don't really think enough about what problem we're we trying to solve here. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the best products that I've seen get to market are solving a problem for customers. So we've got to get much more customer centric. Welcome to the Innovate podcast, uh, the show where we discuss, uh, dissect and attempt to rebuild the world of uh, innovation within consumer goods. Uh, Today, I'm delighted to be joined by April Preston, uh, Global Product Director at Holland & Barrett, uh, and and before that, Director of Product Development at Marks & Spencers and many, many other roles in the food and drink industry. I think it's fair to say one of the legends of uh, product innovation within the food industry, for sure. Um, April, welcome to the Innovate podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. Lovely to be here. Delighted you asked me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. It'll it'll be very interesting, I'm I'm sure. I think for to start with, it would be uh, useful to some of the listeners that don't know you just to kind of run through your background first of all, and then we'll get into some some rapid fire questions uh, after that before getting stuck into the kind of the the, the meaty innovation topics. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit about yourself, April. Okay, well, I'm going to do the very, very potted version because there's 35 years of it to go through. (laughs) So um, basically, single thread throughout my career to date has been food. I've pretty much done multiple roles in the food industry, starting off in hospitality, running restaurants. Um, I've been in retail, food retail. I've been in food manufacturing. Um, I've done transformation projects. I've worked at Harrods, Holland and Barrett, Marks and Spencers, Two Sisters Food Group, all of them in product development, innovation and um, food leadership roles. So I've got lots and lots of views that I'd love to share today. <laughs> Very good. Quite the, quite, quite the impressive uh, CV for sure. So I think, yeah, one of the things that would be interesting, and I know you're relatively early days in your kind of new role at Holland and Barrett, but just maybe we'll be looking to kind of uh, see what your views are on some of the comparisons between food and drink that you know so well versus uh, health and wellness, but we'll, we'll get into that in, in due course. Yeah. Uh, to start the, uh, the, the the podcast episodes, we always kind of run through just some rapid fire questions so the listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit more. Uh, the first one, what's your, you know, I follow you on Instagram, you, you, you eat um, out extensively, I would say you have a very, very strong knowledge of the UK uh, restaurant scene what's your what's your favorite town or city in the UK for food at the moment well I just want to add Ben eating out is part of my work you know it's research and development so it's not yeah. just like that for fun <laughs> um I'm gonna have to be really predictable and say London I know you'd right. love me to say Manchester yeah. but uh, Manchester is really really you know there's some exciting stuff going on there but just the volume of new restaurant openings in London is incredible and yeah. I read every single newsletter there is and there are probably 20 30 restaurants opening in London for one in any other big city in the UK so right. I mean that's where the variety is if you'd asked me world I probably would have said Tel Aviv um because i've uh, honestly the food there is incredible if you've never been but um, if you say uk it's london right okay okay and what what would your what would your kind of your it's a bit cliche but your kind of death row final meal be it's never changed actually well when i started drinking at the age of 18 obviously (laughs) but it would be a beautiful (laughs) a beautiful bottle of red wine probably northern rhone some Spanish right. um, Marcona almonds, some really beautiful vintage cheddar and some very sweet and juicy grapes. 
I, oh, I'm just thinking about it now. It's breakfast time, but honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I could eat at any time of the day. It's just such a wonderful array of foods to eat together. Um, and you probably get asked this a lot, given your kind of your standing in the food industry. But when kind of younger, yeah, younger people looking to get build build a career in the food industry approach you and ask you about it, what, what do you what do you say to them? How, how do you counsel them when when they're considering joining the food industry? Well. I would say do it. Obviously, I've spent my whole career in the food industry and there's so much, so much variety. I mean, I think the thing is, food is the universal language. Everybody on this planet has to eat. So you're never going to be short of um, inspiration of um, a job, basically. (laughs) And I think really get to understand the variety within the industry. I mean, when I started, I was in restaurants that was the only food industry I knew. I knew I wanted to work with food. Um, but honestly, having done 35 years now, I um, I know that there's such a breadth and there's something for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and obviously, you, you've been in the sector for a, a, a long time now. But do, do you, if you hadn't have joined, landed in the food industry, do you know where you would have loved to maybe spend your career as an alternative? <laughs> Well, when I was young, I always wanted to be an extra in disaster movies. Um, (laughs) In the mid-70s, there were a lot of films like The Poseidon Adventure and and Towering Inferno, and I wanted to be one of those people that ran around in the background. Slightly joking, but I'm a bit of an oxymoron in that I'm an introvert, but I'm quite a sort of animated, passionate introvert, and I've always hated public speaking. But what I've started to enjoy recently is I've done quite a lot of hosting um, of live shows to customers, etc. With and I've been right. working with Andy Peters and Fred Syriac, and I absolutely love that. So I think I'd like to be a TV presenter, Ben, if awesome. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very odd, bearing in mind I am an introvert. Don't know where with, that with, comes from. With a sideline in disaster movie. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, okay, perfect. Well, let, let, let's get into the kind of the uh, the, the main topic of the uh, the, the podcast. So we're going to. Yeah, look, look at the world of product innovation broadly within consumer goods. Obviously, there'll be a food and drink focus, and we'll, we'll kind of touch on health and wellness as well. But, we're, yeah, we'll try and kind of pick it apart and, and maybe maybe visualise what it could look like in, in, in five years from now. Just think what innovation needs to do to kind of get fit for purpose, particularly in the current climate of the, of the cost of living uh, yeah. crisis. So, um, you know, I guess one of the one of the the kind of the areas that I like to start is to just to get your your observations on the we'll, we'll start with the food and drink innovation sector first of all if you had to score mm-hmm. it out of 10 uh, for impact what 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 score would you give it and why um well I, I was thinking about this earlier I, I don't think you can give it one score because it's such a varied industry you know if you look right. at um what's happened over the last couple of years, and you look at the restaurant industry and hospitality, for example, and I absolutely hate the word, but the way that they pivoted so quickly when we went into lockdown, you know, I'd give them 10 out of 10 for that. Um, You know, a lot of the small startups and the brands that are coming through really, really innovative. I think where I'd give more of a one or a two out of 10 is in some of the big um, food retailers that are basically just churning at the moment and not right. really innovating so lots right. of great mpd coming through but not stuff that's really going to shift the dial in terms of impact right okay interesting and so, i'm looking at myself there because obviously i'm part of that industry but um yeah we can talk about that later yeah yeah sure okay so what kind of looking at the the, the sector as a whole over the past um maybe not a couple of years because obviously it's been covid and that's, that's been a fairly unique dynamic maybe kind of five ten years 
Prior, mm. what do you think the industry as a whole could do better when it comes to product innovation? And let's maybe focus on kind of retail, yeah, mass market retail. Yeah, um, um, I think we've just got to keep the customer at the heart of what we do. Right. Um, you can't go far wrong if you're if you've got the customer at heart of what you've got what what you're thinking of. And I think we get too lost in ideas and product ideas and concepts and don't really think enough about what problem we're we trying to solve here. Mm -hmm. um, and all the best products that I've seen get to market are solving a problem for customers. So we've got to get much more customer centric. I then think we sort of have this swing between overusing data or overusing gut feel. And for me, great product development comes as a good mix of, of the two. So, right. you know, really, really good data um, that's customer focused with experience, gut feel um, and not being too bound by the results that you get. Otherwise, you'll just do what you've always done. Right. OK. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's, there's a, a number of, um, I think, areas of the sector that I see kind of flip flopping between the two or going too heavy on data or too heavy on mm. On, on, on gut feel, that's yeah, that's a really interesting observation. How, how do you how do you feel that the the innovation process, I guess, has changed over your time in the consumer goods sector? Both, you know, kind of looking back at say Two Sisters, for example, and your your yeah. Marks and Spencers. Um, I don't think the innovation process has changed enough. I think the requirement to get to market has speeded up beyond recognition. You know social media the digital world trends come and go so quickly um yeah. that we really really need to act with pace now um and i know we've talked about it before ben but honestly i've never seen customer behavior change so quickly as it has in the last couple of years with yeah. pandemic and covid um but yet the way that most companies still do innovation is exactly the same and i think it needs a good shake up basically so you, you mentioned time to market there. I mean, if we kind of look back, you know, 10, 15 years versus versus now, what, what, how has that time changed and where do you think it needs to get to if, if the, you think the industry is still too slow? I think, I mean, really, if we're talking about getting food products to market, I think you need to be on a sort of four to six month timeline maximum. I mean, yeah. I'd love to get it down to one or two months, but haven't <laughs> quite yeah. worked out how to do how to do that exactly yet. Right. Um, but I, I feel there's something in much more of a test and learn mentality. I think we try and achieve perfection before we hit market. And I think if we can bring that test and learn pre-launching, that's even better. So an iterative approach with customers um, pre pre-launch, but then launch and then iterate and iterate until you get it spot on because I think right. what the industry tends to do try and perfect something which takes a long time take it yeah. into the market doesn't resonate with customers give up on it throw that one out and come on to a new idea and I think there's probably some brilliant products and concepts that have had huge potential that were given up on far too early so that right. deep understanding of why things weren't quite right because it could have just been one element that wasn't right yeah, that, that's interesting. That that one shot approach is quite unique to food and drink because if you look at say fast fashion, you've got businesses like Zara, uh, like the Chinese e-commerce yeah. e business Shein, that they've got a, a kind of a three to four week time yeah. to market, but they don't they don't go and produce hundred thousand units of a particular garment. They'll do five hundred, a thousand, and if it's you know if it's showing promise, then they'll kind of iterate and, and further commit from there. And I think that approach is is something that food and drink can learn from. I, I definitely do. And I think 
you know, the, the beauty of where I'm at Holland Barrett at the moment is we've got a really good approach to testing and learning in just a handful of stores because right. we've actually got 1,800 stores, but, you know, really test the concept and then start to roll it out. And hopefully we can start to speed things up in that way. Right. OK, that's interesting. So it's early days for you at Holland and Barrett. You've you've only been there a handful of months, um, but eight weeks, Ben. Eight, eight, weeks. eight weeks. Okay, <laughs> even less than that. Um, do, do you have any kind of headline views in terms of the the, the differences between innovation, um, product development approaches within food and drink and and, and, and your um, sector? Well, I think in in the new sector there is. Well, definitely at Holland about there's an openness to doing things differently, which is is brilliant because I might in my whole career now have the opportunity to do my best work in terms of try some of the things that I've wanted to try before. Right. I think if you look at the health and wellness sector versus food, the biggest challenge is it's so heavily regulated in terms of what you can say, the claims okay. you can make. Um, and, you know, you luckily for us at Holland Barrett, we've got a really um, great team of medics, scientists, regulatory affairs people that can really make sure that every every claim we want to make um, is um, cemented in science, medicine is legal. Um, and that will speed us up because we've got that in-house resource. The bit that we need to get right, right. is really understanding what are the motivating claims to make with customers. And that's, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about Viper, but that's exactly where Viper would do a brilliant job for us because we can test a number of different things to talk about very quickly okay. um, and come to uh, the right right conclusions. Right, okay. No, that's interesting. And just give the, the, a sense of scale between... Um, you know the, the kind of the volume of, of MPD at say Marks and Spencers and the volume of MPD in Holland, Holland and Barrett is it, is it more concentrated where, where you are are now and and, and therefore what implications um, does that have? Well, it's interesting because Holland and Barrett have never had a, a product development team, so the right. team that I'm creating there, the global product team, is um, brand new. Okay. And um, historically, at Holland and Barrett, obviously, it's been um, a, an edit of a lot of great health and wellness brands with a little bit of own label. Um, and what we're going to do, bringing this crack team into Holland Barrett, is create a fantastic own label health and wellness range okay. um, that I think will really shake up the market. Okay. And the, the we, you know, as we stand today, we're recording this in a, a, early July. We are in, in the midst of what looks like quite a, uh, substantial cost of living crisis, yeah. which is probably only going to get worse, unfortunately, certainly for the next mm. next six months and on into next year. What what do you think it will mean for um, for food and drink, first of all, in terms of um, again food and drink retail uh, and, yeah. and on innovation within that? I mean, I think it's going to affect everything. You know, it's already permeating our lives. Um, I think the when a cost of living crisis hits or an economic crisis, I think the temptation is to slow down on innovation. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think we need to do exactly the opposite and potentially take a few more risks and try a few more things if we're going to be successful. Right. Okay. The key for me to unlocking it is really understanding, first of all, what category is going to be hit the most, because it's quite often it's not what you think. I mean, I've right. inherited some new businesses now I've always um, focused on food but um, I'm now looking after beauty and supplements as well and you'll be familiar with the lipstick effect where um, you know people still spend on luxury goods but they scale it down so rather than buying a fur coat not that you would nowadays but they might buy a lipstick yeah. instead 
Right, okay. um, so I think it's really understanding how customers will, what what categories will they still buy into and what are the alternatives? I mean, the last time we had an economic crisis, then premium um, food did quite well because people stopped going to restaurants. So I think that'll be interesting. The key for me is, or what I'm starting to see already with the way customers are behaving, is they're setting themselves a m- monthly budget. And yep. they're sticking to that. You know, you see people going through the tills at the supermarket saying, when I hit £40, please stop. I'm not taking the rest of that shopping. And right. I think the secret to innovation will be really understanding how we can help customers stick to that budget. And I'm not talking the obvious, let's create a, a basics range. I've got a few other little secrets that I'm not going to share that could really help mm-hmm. customers stick to their budgets and, and really um, support them when they're trying right. to control their costs. So it's 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 innovation. It's an opportunity for innovation, but one that needs to be mindful of the fact that, that budgets are going to be constrained for a period of time, for sure. Yeah, and I, I think it's not making assumptions. You know, the obvious thing you hear in retail when there's an economic crisis, let's lower our prices and create a budget range. I don't think that's what the secret is. I think we really need to understand customers' mindsets and what problems they need solving. And the problem yeah. they need solving is how do they stick to budget? Right, okay. Um, and we, there'll be a number of listeners from the food service sector as, as, as well within this. You've obviously still got an extensive network within the restaurant sector. Mm-hmm. What, what would you be saying to either entrepreneurs or, or you know, restaurant owners coming to you kind of looking for advice in terms of how they, they set themselves up to succeed in the next year? Well, I think it's the same thing. I think it's coming up with a model where you can really, really control costs so you can give customers the best value for money possible. And I think, you know, a lot of, I mean, it's almost, um, you know, it's almost like we had a crystal ball with with Cove in terms of the way that restaurants pivoted and and set up home delivery and dark kitchens and um, all of those things that where you can really get a restaurant quality meal at home for great value. I think that will continue to be a rich seam of um, growth for the right. hospitality industry. Um, the the let's just have a look about innovation in terms of um, you know kind of where it's come from and where where you, you think it needs to needs to go uh, in terms of things like structure and process and, uh, and and technology because you know certainly my my time in the um, in the consumer goods sector since the since the early early noughties, staging gate has been the kind of the fundamental yeah. um, development process within there and it, it still seems to be it's not it's not the default but it still seems to be a, a backbone of most kind of um, retailers uh, innovation mm. processes do you, do you think that needs to change or do you think there are some fundamental kind of uh, strengths of, of of staging gate that that will remain part of process moving mm. forward and how, how do you see process evolving I mean, I, I think staging gate, you know, it gets often confused with very admin heavy processes that slow businesses down. Staging gate at its simplest is just making the right decisions at the right time. Um, and you could, in theory, if you had the right information and the right people, do that in five days. And I right. think what we've got to do, I, I actually think it's a very thorough way of, of looking at things. Um, and it can speed you up rather than slow you down because if you don't follow that decision process, you end up doing lots of rework. Um, So I think staging gate probably, I mean, certainly in my businesses, I would keep that, but I would be looking for ways to speed that up. I'd be looking for ways to bring more objectivity into it rather than subjectivity. 
um, getting data at the right points and every step of the way, bringing it back to the customer and, you know, right from the beginning, what's the proposition, what what problems it's solving, you know, as you move through feasibility, is this answering this problem, test it with customers. And I think if we can do that very speedily using technology, then we can get to market much more quickly. Okay, that's interesting. And the the the, the structure that surrounds that that process, you you sounds like you've got a very interesting opportunity at Holland and Barrett, given that there was no kind of formal product function. How are you thinking of of kind of structuring the the the, the products and MPD uh, teams going going forward? Well, it's interesting because this is my first global role, which is one of the reasons right. it's so exciting. And yeah. um, I'm still, you know, I'm eight weeks in and really talking to a lot of experts that have run global teams before to understand what's the best way to set it up, um, you know, centrally versus locally, um, and really picking lots of brains. And I haven't quite got to where I want to yet, but it, the, the exciting thing about the Holland and Barrett teams, I'm creating an end-to-end product development team. So we've got everything right. from, you know, the insight coming in one end and the the packaging going out the other plus it's omni-channel which um you know is also very exciting how you do product development so i think um i've started with a reasonably traditional structure but i think it will evolve into something that could potentially be market leading and set a bit of a way for the future oh right okay interesting because we, we um certainly you know it's been a long time since I worked for a retailer. It was kind of 2005, 2006. But when I was at Sainsbury's then, the the products and buying teams were structured on a category by category basis. And I think mm-hmm. that's still, still not necessarily, again, not, not the default, but there's quite a few retailers do yeah. do that. Uh, I know one or two now who are moving to what, what they kind of term like a pod structure, which is there's a degree of kind of cross-functionality. Um, yeah. are, are you seeing that as a, as a trend across retail or do most retailers still kind of build mm-hmm. their teams on a, Category by category I, I think basis. we're starting to see some of the big retailers move to more of a project-based product development team. I mean, that's certainly yeah. how I'm setting my team up. So they're on a project-based and we're looking at customers' needs and missions rather than categories. Yeah. Um, and that leads to very different outputs. Um, okay. I, I have seen it in, in some of our, uh, some of the other big retailers, but I've not seen it to the extent that I've taken it into Honda Barrett. So, right, okay. again, I mean, the same way, I'm going to take a test and learn approach to it and an, an iterative approach and just see how it works. But definitely right. in terms of getting the customer at the heart of what you do, setting my team up in this way is, is really, really helpful. But, right. you know, the, the, there are so many more strands to it because in health and wellness, I've got, um, you know, formulation experts, I've got nutritionists, I've got um, regulatory guys in my in my team so it all kind of it's a it's a very different setup anyway and it's on the bar it's a 150 year old business but it's actually still it feels like a 150 year old startup it's quite right. entrepreneurial in the way things are right. done and that's a double-edged sword because in some ways it's a little bit wild west but in other ways you can get stuff done quickly without lots of treacle so it's an exciting place at the moment yeah yeah for sure well it, it, it sounds like there's quite a few more stakeholders that you need to consider compared to say a food and drink retailer less really about. no less i think in big food and drink organizations there's too many stakeholders that have an opinion that probably okay. isn't there you know every single person in my team is there for a reason because they have a contribution to make to the end product um so actually there's less stakeholders to engage um and sort of 
get their opinions. It's just a, a cross-functional team that are working really hard to create the best products. Okay. And and what do you, in terms of expectations about the the um, the performance of, of new products and the, and the cost of new products? Well, one of my observations over the last five or ten years of, of, of running Viper and kind of having a, a lens across multiple stakeholders in in the in the industry is that the, many businesses don't necessarily have a great grasp of, of what it's actually costing them to get products to market and what what those products need to kind of generate to to cover their costs. Do do, do you think that's likely to change? What, what are the expectations for you? going forward from that perspective well I think I mean again I'm here with a blank sheet of paper in terms of how we measure success and I don't right. think um, I've ever to date in my career seen a really good way of measuring MPD success or a really good indicator of how much it, it gets it costs to get the products to market so um, what I'm doing is taking all of those learnings from my career previously and applying them to make sure that we absolutely do get a good return um, but what I don't want to do is to to make it you know it's really important for us at Holland and Barrett because we are going through a big transformation at the moment we've got a massive global ambition and growth targets and I need to foster um, a, a culture of wanting to try things and learning from when it didn't go quite right rather than yeah. being risk averse um, and I think sometimes if you put two tight measurements around MPD. I, th I think that what we need to foster is a quick decision making, go, no go. That's what takes the time and the money. Yeah. Um, and and this iteration approach. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I've, I've had two or three people on, on the, the podcast series so far make similar observations that, mm. yes, arguably the industry needs to kind of tighten up on innovation measurement and KPIs. But actually, if you overdo it, you, you're going to kind of kill anybody's appetite for, for any degree yeah. of risk, really, which is where the, the kind of the, the big step forward can. Can come from. I think it's it's the wasteful money that's spent because there's too many iterations, too many stakeholders, sloppy decision making, you know, all of that sort of thing. That's what we've got to tighten up on. Yeah. Um, but actually, I'd a hundred times rather launch a thousand products and get 30% of them right than um, launch 500 products and get 10 of them right. You know, I mean, yeah. it sounds an odd thing to say, but I think sometimes if we're going to take this test and learn approach, then you've got to put stuff out there, but you've got to quickly, quickly learn and adapt. Yeah. And you can't yeah. beat people up when it goes wrong because, you know, not that it goes wrong, or, you know, when it isn't successful first time because you've learned something from doing that activity. So, Talk, talking about people there, you, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the teams and, and, and product developers um, within the food and drink industry. Many developers come from a, uh, a chefing background, a restaurant background. Um, you've probably got quite an interesting opportunity here within health and wellness. What 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 skill sets do you think could flourish within uh, within product development going forward as it kind of uh, as it builds as a uh, as, as a career in a sector? I mean, for me, the most important thing is mindset. Right. having the right mindset and a huge amount of resilience because you'll get a lot of knockbacks. You're basically yeah. fine. I mean, I always say the best product developers are Alan Sugar with an encyclopedic knowledge of food in the food right. industry. You know, you need to have that gut instinct, that business now, you know, you need to have your a real true deep understanding of customers and what they want. Um, and, 
yeah, I mean, that's what that's really who I think we should have in our industry is is people that will flourish in that sort of environment. But you need a huge amount of resilience. You know, you you come up against people every day that are the naysayers and the non-believers. And um, yeah. I'm not saying I've had that in Holland and Barrett, by the way, but in my career, I've had that. And I think you've just got to be able to have self-belief in in what you're what you're creating backed up obviously by data <laughs> yeah yeah for sure no, that, that's interesting that, that's actually a very similar answer to what i would give if asked about entrepreneurism yeah it's that it's that resilience you've got to kind of believe in what you're doing you've got to be very very passionate about it and but equally determination yeah for sure for sure but also then, you've got to you've got to listen and be curious as well so you can't be so determined and resilient that you're closed down you know i mean i learn something new every day and i really listen and i you know, it, it just helps you grow and, and be be informed. And I think that's, you've got to be open to that because the day you think you know everything, then you may as well give up and go home. Yeah, 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 for sure. So the, maybe kind of th thinking about product now and, and maybe reflecting back at your, your your time at Marks and Spencer's over the last four or five years, mm -hmm. um, you know, what we, we, we've talked about kind of the, the ability at least to kind of tolerate failures and disappointments as long as you're yeah. kind of learning from them what, what what would be your you know kind of reflecting back the the, the main um failures are, i think it's a bad word at times but the, yeah maybe a disappointment in terms of um a, a product or a range that launched and what what did you learn from it and why um i'm not going to pick a particular range or product i think the bit that I still haven't cracked, which is the opportunity now, is how do we create very, very healthy solutions for customers that taste great and are convenient but still feel fresh? Right. Okay. And I haven't I hadn't cracked that to date, but watch this space because because we're getting there. I, I think there's this sort of tension between convenience, freshness health that's a very very difficult one to crack and i think it needs some really innovative and creative thinking to yeah. get the right solution that's interesting one of the, the the sectors that i'm quite fascinated by at the moment is the is the plant-based sector mm -hmm. I, I think they're they're doing some very interesting things from, yeah. from innovation because they're having to be very kind of scientific and, and R&D led. I mean, it, it's kind of genuine kind of manufacturing innovation and technology innovation. What, what, what do you think, not, not just food and drink, but uh, other sectors can learn from what that plant-based sector is doing at the moment? I mean, I think it's interesting because actually a lot of the innovations happening with some of our biggest meat manufacturers yeah. and I I'm really impressed with the way that some of those quite traditional industries have you know take someone like Finnebrogue have recognized that you know they've got one industry but they have to change their thinking because the world's going in a different direction I mean it's yeah. interesting because Holland and Barrett were the very very first people to introduce vegan food to the market many many right, years okay. ago and it was right. long before um, you know, it, it sort of caught on as a trend. I, I'm, I've been so impressed by the work that's going on in that sector. I think, you know, the solving the problems of I want to eat something that tastes like meat, um, but I don't want to eat meat. I think cracked that really, really well. I, I am a bit worried that it's starting, you know, for something that people, a lot of customers, and there's lots of different needs in the vegan market, but one of 
one of them is people want to eat more healthily, eat more plants. Um, and I'm a little bit worried that it's going too far down an ultra processed route and a science right. route. And I think we need to balance that with some more fresh, natural solutions. Right. Um, but I, I, I honestly, I think it's it's the biggest um, shift I've seen in terms of real innovation in the food industry for, for a long, long time. Um, and there's some some incredible. I mean, every day I discover something new. What you can do with a mushroom nowadays, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's impressive. I, I saw. Um, it's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. I saw the guys at Wiki Kitchen on some Instagram feed the other week doing a, yeah. a big kind of barbecue thing in 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 the states, and they were they were using these kind of mushroom steaks, mushroom patties, and they they looked amazing. Actually, they were yeah. Yeah, very, very yeah. impressive. Yeah. Mushroom fiber. I mean, there's some incredible meat substitutes being made out of mushroom fiber now, and it's right. you know, mushroom fiber is an adaptogen, I think. So, um, you know, yeah. could really, really. I mean, it's just really impressive. It's it's difficult to keep up sometimes. Actually, I spend a huge amount of my time researching nowadays because that industry is moving so quickly. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. Um, which you know, kind of leads nicely onto the the. the opposite question what's the, the the best thing that you've seen maybe not necessarily kind of MS and holland but holland about but just across the market in the last yeah. year or so what, what's the what's the best um, well I, I was thinking i thought this question might come up so i was thinking about this and actually i thought what you know what made the biggest impression on me in the last you know couple of months that i've seen um and obviously i've got these new industries of supplements and, and beauty as well as food now and there's an incredible um, company. They actually launched in 2020, um, so it's more than the last six months, but they're only based yeah. in the States. They're not in the UK. Uh -huh. um, and it's a company called A System or A System. Okay. Um, and what they've got is um, it's a range of supplements, um, but they are backed by medicine and science. And right. they're solution-focused, so it's not vitamin A, vitamin D. It's actually... Um, solving customers' problems. But I think what makes them unique and differentiated from anything else I've seen is they've got this kind of dual approach, science and medicine on one side, but aesthetic design and branding on the other. So right. not only are they solving a problem, but they look beautiful. It's a, it's a refillable um, type uh, model so you they've designed an absolutely stunning tin which you want to keep on your I mean it looks like a you know some sort of piece of art that you want to keep on the side right. and you refill your your supplements so I think taking that approach of design and science and medicine is something very new and it, it really stuck with me I was very impressed yeah that's interesting because I, I you know as, as someone who has I have some supplements but I'm certainly not a kind of a a, a, a heavily engaged shop within that category. I find it a little baffling at times, the kind of vitamin C, vitamin D, all the, all the different things. I think there is, a, there is an assumption that consumers know what these things do, but it sounds like they've completely flipped it to a, yeah. a use case driven. And Right, okay. So, it, so, you know, I mean, it would be this, it would be a combination of um, ingredients that would help you sleep better, but they'd have the science right. and medicine to back it up. But, right, okay. you know, Normally, you'd get somebody going down a science and medicine route or you'd get somebody going down a design route. You know, you see yeah. a lot of the influences with very, uh, but they're not proven. And I think yeah. what they've spotted is there is there is something there. By the way, you should just take vitamin D if you don't take anyone out, anything else, because most people in this country are short on vitamin D. Right, okay. <laughs> That's what I've learned in the last eight weeks. <laughs> no, but um, I, I mean, 
the supplements thing is interesting because we're, we're part of our transformation at Holland and Barrett is that we are taking a much more holistic approach to health and wellness. So one of the right. reasons I'm there is to create amazing food that will help people eat a really nutritious diet, um, which then you supplement with supplements rather than taking supplements because you're leading an unhealthy lifestyle. So, you know, it's an interesting lens to look at it through. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're nearly out of time, sadly. But the the, the final f- final question before we close: What, what uh, maybe thinking back to food and drink now? But what, what do you think the kind of the innovation sector does amazingly well that's either not understood externally or, or just not, yeah. not kind of talked about particularly? Um. Well, I think I think what the food sector does really well in the innovation sector is the amount of hard work that happens behind the scenes to get a product to market. And I'd use the analogy of modern art. You know, you see people right. go and look at the painting and they say, well, I could do that. But you don't know why it works so well. And I, I always roll out this Edison quote that innovation's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Yeah. And I honestly don't think people realise the hard work and the difficulty of turning an idea into a product on the shelf. I think that's completely hidden. And it's always, you know, when you start to tell people what it involves to get a product that people want to buy at a price they can afford it, that can go through a supply chain, that has enough life on it. You know, it's it's very, very difficult work. It's very skilled work. And I think a lot of people think with MPD, or you just think of an idea and you cook it up in the kitchen, then it goes on the shelf. But that hidden behind the scenes work that goes on to create successful products is I think one of the uh, best kept secrets. Yeah, for sure. No, it's a nice, nice note to, uh, to end on. Sadly, we are out of time. Um, so April, all that remains for me is to say thank you very much for uh, giving up your time today. It's been a really fascinating uh, discussion. We will no doubt thank do you. it again in due course. Uh, yeah. So um, thank you to those uh, listeners tuning in and thank you to April Preston Global Product Director at Holland and Barrett, and we will see you again very soon. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. We really hope you enjoyed that episode of the Innovate podcast. To hear more bi-weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button below. Thank you.